0: It needs to have dirt under its nails, it needs to have mistakes, it needs to have failings if it's going to express the life of the listeners. Otherwise, it's just technique.
1: Welcome to Book Society, the podcast where we talk to authors about the books that they love to read and dive deep into the books that they've written. I'm your host, Lucas Cantor-Santiago, We're doing another episode from the Miami Book Fair. Usually I'm not in the same room with the guests and they can't see my notebook, but you know, here we are. So I'm here with the esteemed, the amazing, the wonderful Dr. Susan Rogers. And Susan Rogers is a SoCal native. So like all the best people in the world, she comes from California. She got her start as an MCI console and tape tech. And if you know what that is, you are older than me and she was an engineer for a little-known act out of the Midwest, goes by the name of Prince. She was the engineer on Purple Rain, Around the World in a Day, Parade, Sign of the Times, and The Black Album. That's right, that is The Prince, the artist formerly known as Prince, one of the greatest talents of the last hundred years. She then went on to become a record producer. She worked with the Bare Naked Ladies, David Byrne, whose book we've read on this show, Robert Ford, Jeff Black, The Rusted Root, Tricky, Michael Penn, towed to the Wet Sprocket. And if that were the end of the bio, that would be incredibly impressive. But after she did all of that, she decided, you know what, I'm going to leave music. I'm going to get a PhD in music, cognition, and psychoacoustics from McGill University, one of the best places you can get a PhD in that sort of thing. And she is now an associate professor at Berkeley, which is one of the best places you can be an associate professor of music and learn about music. The book that Dr. Susan Rogers chose today was The Stone Loves the World by Brian Hall. Penguin Press came out this year in 2022. We actually had a little bit of a miscommunication and tell us the name of the book that you read by Brian Hall.
0: Oh, I've read (laughs) The Stone Loves the World, but I loved it so much that I went looking for his earlier book, a historical fiction work called I Should Be Extremely Happy in Your Company. And it is... An incredible work. I'd put it up there with Hilary Mantel, whom I love, who wrote about Thomas Cromwell. And it's hard to write historical fiction, but damn, Brian Hall, home run over the fence.
1: The Stone loves the world. is feels like historical fiction. Also, I mean, it's about the Rand Corporation and sort of Cold War America. I mean, it's not about that. It's about a family, but it takes place in a very detailed account of this period. Mm. One of the main characters is a scientist who works on. Cold War preparedness and mm-hmm. all this kind of interesting stuff. So, why did you pick this book?
0: You know, it doesn't matter what the, the subject matter is. What really matters for those of us who love literature and prose is the voice of the author. Can they get you into the story, and can they get you into the psychology of the characters, such that you believe these characters and you, you're interested in what these characters are going to do next? And that's exactly what Brian Hall does. His characters. I could relate to. So one of the main characters is a fellow who, he may be on the spectrum. He's someone who's bad at social relationships, but he's a college professor and he teaches in uh, astrophysics and he had a precocious female student. And he and this precocious female student, after she graduates, they get together, they have a romantic relationship and they give birth to a daughter. And the daughter has inherited his brains and mom's social skills to a certain extent. So it's about this family, as you said, it's about the man and his parents and where he came from, his mother and father. It's about his, not really wife, but his partner, the mother of his child. It's about his daughter and how these people with high native IQs, perhaps somewhat impaired social skills,
1: navigate their worlds. I'm not really into the like family kitchen table drama book. Mm. And if you were to describe this book to me, I'd say, "Eh, all right, I'll get around to it. But it blew me away as a piece of literature. I absolutely loved it. And one of the themes that I pulled out of it was the idea of generational trauma, because each of these Mm. generations has their own problem. And the story is told almost backwards. It starts Mm -hmm. with the youngest daughter. And then we hear about Mark, the astrophysicist. And we get back to the parents who are these World War II era people who have just ended up in a mismatched marriage. Yeah. And that, that trauma really carries through three generations later.
0: Yeah. We don't often see women in the sciences and mathematics mm-hmm. really well portrayed. We're a minority, but those of us who truly think as scientists or think as mathematicians or physicists who love and embrace the logic and reason and the physical world, we need to see ourselves portrayed a little bit more often. Sometimes every so often, you know, there'll be a character in a book and the portrayal just feels a wee bit patronizing, a wee bit sure. like, here's my impression of what a female <laughs> scientist looks like and talks like. Brian Hall totally nailed it because I related to these smart, sensitive, moderately accomplished Women in his books. Those characters are really true to life. Another thing he does that just knocks me out is the way he describes a scene. He takes pages and pages to write about Mark going down to his basement, sitting in a chair, putting on his classical albums and listening to records. And the cat, yeah. you know, is on his lap and the cat is off his lap and pages of a man
1: listening to music. How do you do that? That was my favorite part of the book. And I, I, I want to talk to you about this. Just descriptions of music in literature are, are just almost always boring. And even in books about music, I, I won't name drop any titles because I don't want to embarrass any authors who I might later meet. But there are books about music that you have definitely read that I have read where the author just has some brilliant points about the reason that something is the way it is and then proceeds to just describe a symphony. Mm-hmm, and it's exactly. like, okay, and one of the brilliant things you do in your book, your book and Ogi Ogas's book, you have a co-author, you just direct the readers to a playlist, which is so brilliant and something that I will probably do with my own book because you can't really talk about music in the abstract on any deep level without really some basis of comparison. So having said that, Brian Hall somehow got me into the world of listening to all these like early Beethoven string quartets with pages and pages of descriptions of them that I thought as a musician and a composer who knows this music pretty well were really quite brilliant.
0: Yeah, it's delightful writing. It truly Mm. delights. So in my own book, I'm not veering off topic here, Mm. but in my own book, what I wanted to put the focus on was the listener and the listener profile. Mm. My contention running theme throughout the book is that every listener is different. So music has a form, and you can describe that form. You can show it on the page. There's the score. That's how it, what its form is. But it lives, or I should say it's born or reborn. That perhaps is more accurate in the listener's head. So we could play a record in this room right now, and acoustically, it's the same record for everybody. But in our heads, each one of us is experiencing a unique record. We're all having a unique and private experience of listening. I love that Brian Hall tapped into the love and the private satisfaction that his listener is getting Mm -hmm. from these moments with these records. They're important to him. They're important to his self-identity, and they're important to his navigating the world, to his understanding the outside world. Music is serving here as kind of a sherpa to take him into the world at large, a place where he generally, this character generally feels pretty uncomfortable, but But, he's comfortable when he's listening to music. That's a beautiful thing.
1: The idea of just sitting down and listening to a record and having that be the activity that you're doing, I think the proliferation of earbuds and streaming services have really made that different. I mean, when you were producing records, you were producing records. Now really, anyone is only producing singles. You know, I mean, you make albums, but they're going to be consumed as individual songs. Yeah. And it's a rare project and a rare artist that can get a record company to go for an album or even a concept album.
0: Yeah, we've gone back to the 1950s (laughs) with singles. When I was a kid, because I was born in the 50s, but when I was a kid, an LP, a long playing album, was just a collection of eight or 10 singles, the most recent singles. You just cobble them together. There began to be concept albums in the 60s, but it was Pink Floyd with Dark Side of the Moon that changed it for everybody. I remember reading a Billboard magazine, this would have been uh, probably 1978. You open up that Billboard magazine, there was a full-page ad, and it said, 10 years ago today, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon entered the charts, and you turn the page and it, another full-page ad with three words, it never left. <laughs> <laughs> That's not done. You don't Uh, do that. If you get uh, on the charts for a week, you're successful. Yeah. For a month, that's a big album. For a year, unheard of. They had an 11-year run. On the Billboard Top 200 album charts, that was a concept album from tip to tail, and it changed music in the 1970s. That's when recording artists began to say, oh yeah, I'm going to have a theme here. I'm going to have a concept. When I worked for Prince in the 80s, he used to say, we don't make singles, we make albums. He meant that throughout his entire career. He was focused on not single success. He didn't care. Let them play on the radio. So what? They will or they won't. What he cared about was the listener experience when they bought that album. In those days, it was vinyl, but even CDs, this is the case. Put on side A song one and listen, top to bottom. You're right that with the advent of streaming and portable listening devices, We've tipped the scales in favor of more passive listening rather than active, engaged listening. It's changing music a little bit. It's changing how people make music because now they have to try to make a stimulus, an object that's going to work without being too distracting. Huh. Yeah, I don't know. I Do I, I, I would have th- struggled with that if I were making those kinds of records. You think producers are thinking about that? Oh, yeah. They might be overtly or covertly thinking about it, but they are. You want something that is, well, it's, it's like memes, I suppose. Mm-hmm. You want something that's going to get into someone else's head and yeah. make that someone else think, this is the music of me. This is the music of me. That's the only way you're going to get the likes or the posts or whatever it is that people do on social media these days. I have no idea. (laughs) I still buy music. Anyway, that's what you're aiming for. But if you are listening to music over earbuds and you're going about your day, you're walking around campus, or maybe you're listening on speakers because you're in your car or you're listening at the gym or you're just listening while you're at home and you're studying. Kids can do that. Older people can't. What do you need music to do? What do you need it to do? You need it to be your companion to keep you reminded of other people while you go into these essential tasks. So in order to do that, you, you want music that isn't going to distract you with big dynamic changes. It can't get suddenly loud and wake you up. It's going to pull your mind away from what it is you're doing. You want it to have a good steady rhythm, and you don't want the best part about it to be really genius lyrics that are buried somewhere in the middle of the verse. That was for my generation. When we'd sit and listen to to records through loudspeakers, we'd marvel over a certain rhyme, a certain implication of a phrase. But now, music today involves an awful lot more repetition. They'll take a tag phrase, And just repeat it over and over and over and over again until it somehow soaks in to that neural pattern of activity (laughs) and it hitches its little wagon into the star of whatever it is you're doing. And you think, oh yeah, I remember that song. I was in college. That was a good song. It does function differently. I I say that with a huge caveat. That's for many people. Of course, there are always exceptions.
1: That's really interesting. I, I mean, I think about, this is way before your generation, but Cole Porter. Oh, yeah. And, you know, the internal rhymes and the little jokes that were just throwaways, like in the middle of the mm. verse. I mean, it wouldn't even be the chorus, the, you know... The apple on the top of the tree is never too high to achieve. So take an example from Eve. Experiment. Oh, so so
0: good. (laughs) So good. And I loved Yip Harburg, whom, if you know anything about The Wizard of Oz, you'll know that he's the one who wrote lyrics. And he wrote the line, if I were king of the forest, you know, the cowardly lion is singing and he says, my tail would lash, I would show compassion for every living (laughs) thing. Paper, (laughs) pen, writes that rhyme and says, yeah, nailed it. Yeah, you did my tail would lash, I would show compassion. I was Mm. so good. That's a love of words and a love of playing with words. It's an important
1: art. There's a reason why you can watch that film and listen to that music today and it's still great. It's dated, it's 100% of its time, but it is among the best versions of that style, that musical American songbook style. I was talking last night to some poets about Somewhere Over the Rainbow and just the verses are, you know, pretty much the biggest leaps that you can plausibly make as a singer, right? They're just octaves all over the place. And then the B section is whole steps. And it's because in the verses, she's talking about what she wants to do, her aspirations, her hopes and dreams. And then in the B section, she's talking about what she's doing now and where she is now. Just brilliant. And like you would know that from just listening to the melody. You could sort of infer what Mm -hmm. the character might be singing about. It's brilliant Mm. stuff. Look, I knew this podcast was going to veer into music. And, you know, we read this book. I loved this book. Thank you for recommending this book. But I have so many music questions to ask. Great. Let's do it. Um, What are the factors that determine how much people will like music? Doctor.
0: Oh, boy, there's an awful lot of them. I know from my brain science studies, and there's been a really quick acceleration of neuroimaging work, thanks to the new tools that have come out in the last 20 years. So we know a little bit about what the brain is actually doing when it's listening to music. We know that there are at least seven dimensions of a given record. And when I say record, I mean a piece of recorded music. It can be streamed or just whatever. So that's a record to me. So a given record can light up your mental Christmas tree One of seven different ways. And this is why when you ask people, what kind of music do you like? They often say, well, I like a lot of stuff or I like just about everything. And lately I've wanted to say to them, well, of course you do, (laughs) because you might have records in your playlist, in your collection that were chosen for their rhythm. And the lyrics just simply are secondary to that. Maybe they're even sung in a language that you don't speak. You don't even know what they're singing about. But you love that groove. You love that groove. So you've gotten your treat, your release of dopamine from rhythm. It might be lyrics. It might be the melody you mentioned somewhere over the rainbow and those great film scores. The job of a film score is to give us a theme with a melody that provides the subtext of the emotional tone of the film. So you might be primarily a melody listener, or maybe you just love your melodies at a certain time or place in a certain context. There's also just the style of records. Uh, I have a lot of records in my collection that I love for their innovation. Some records we love for their performances because that performance just seemed to come straight from the heart and it wipes you out. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we love certain records for the instrumentation. We might prefer electronic musical instrumentation, or we might prefer records made with actual physical instruments. So we we have these different dimensions on which our brains are capable of getting a treat, a little release of dopamine. Now, when that happens, when a record causes you to release a bit of dopamine, and especially when your reaction goes from liking to wanting, that record is in. Mm. So what that means is when we listen to a record, someone plays us something and you're hearing a novel record for the first time, you're scanning that record. Where are the treats? Where's the music of me? Is there anything here for me? Do I like this? Is this good for me? So you're kind of automatically scanning these dimensions. If you find one, it makes you say, yeah, all right. Okay. I'm into it. That was good. You may say, I like that. But if you find more than one, your reaction may be, oh, I need that. I must have that i want to listen to this again and again this is the music of me which is a phrase i enjoy using that means that that record has released enough dopamine that you now experience this wanting which is going to cause you to work to get that thing again just this morning i was visiting with a, a musician friend last night and this morning I listened to some Eddie Palmieri based on his recommendation. What did you uh, listen to? I listened to Augustine Parish. That's where I started listening. And I listened to a few more before I had to go, but Augustine Parrish. And that saxophone solo by Donald Harrison came in. And it was great before, but it was so damn good. That saxophone solo to my ear is as good as it gets. And of course I had that reaction and my thinking was, I can't wait to play this again. I can't wait to show other people this. I can't wait to hear this and fantasize. And when we listen to music, music that we like, it's very effective at getting us to turn on our so-called default network, meaning a network of nuclei in the brain that get active when we're daydreaming, which we're doing 30 to 50% of the time. We're in our own heads, that's what a brain does goes out into the world, goes back into its own space. So when you listen to music that you like, you go into your own head. That private place, no one else is in there with you. It's just you in that record having an intimate sort of emotional
1: experience.
0: It might be just a rhythmic experience, a motor experience, let's say. It might be an intellectual experience. This record is giving you ideas.
1: One of the devices in your book that I think is brilliant is the idea of a record pull. Mm. And this is actually a term I hadn't heard, but it is something that I have engaged in over and over and over again. It's what musicians do right. when we hang out is yeah. like, check out this song you might not know. Check out this song you might not know. Check out this song you know, but check this thing out about it that you didn't notice. Right, exactly. And I'm so glad that you got to check him out.
0: Yeah, You may know my my friend, local uh, musician named Andrew Yeomanson. His stage name is DJ La Spam and the band is called Spam All Stars. They've been around since the
1: 90s. By reputation. Uh, I don't know them. Yeah.
0: We were visiting last night and he mentioned... Eddie Palmieri. And I thought, that's an artist I don't know well. Let me check that out this morning. Ooh.
1: So this book comes with a link to a playlist on Tidal, which I just want to plug because I had never heard of it. And I'm now it's going to be my default streaming service. Mm. It's just great.
0: Yeah. It's owned by Jay-Z and okay. they emphasize high quality audio. Yeah. So my co-author wanted to have a list or something on YouTube. And I said, no self-respecting audio engineer is going to recommend to <laughs> anyone that they listen to music on YouTube. It is poor quality audio. <laughs> I'd lose my stripes
1: <laughs> if it sent people to YouTube. Well, this goes back to something we started talking about We were talking about Dark Side of the Moon and about how records are made, and I use record in your sense of the word, Mm -hmm. that a piece of recorded music, and how records are today made to be sort of innocuous that you can listen on headphones. And I think this is the way music has always been. It's always been made to fit the medium that it's going to be performed in. And, you know, the first musical instrument that we know about is a flute. And a flute sounds great on an open plane, you know, with some dense wooded areas. It really carries and blends into the environment pretty well. And then the next sort of innovation is a harp. And a harp sounds great in a big stone ziggurat. It's almost impossible to hear a harp outside.
0: You oh, yeah, know, but
1: when you were making records, CDs was really the jam. Vinyl and, so and CDs. Vinyl and CDs. Yeah. But I had this epiphany when I listened to disco on vinyl for the first time. It was a completely different experience because it was made and mastered and recorded to sound good in that medium on big speakers coming off of a record. True. But today, a lot of music is made to sound good on YouTube. It's 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 you know it's squashed, it's overcooked, oh. it's mastered to be basically high end and mid range, and mm. like the low end will pop if you have a sub, but you don't really need to have it. You sort of feel it.
0: You know, I wrote about it in um, it was chapter two of the book, mm. the revolution in music technology that changed the methodology of making a record, really changed careers for recording engineers. I happened to read in 2017 a book that was released the year before by the Nobel laureate, Eric Kandel. And this book rocked my world so hard. It's called Reductionism in Art and Brain Science. And, you know, he's a Nobel laureate and he's late in life, so he can write about whatever he wants. And this book is beautiful. It's got a lot of color plates in it because he's talking about the evolution of paintings and art. And he's also talking about brain science, why these two things are connected. He described a revolution in the visual arts that happened in the mid 19th century that parallels the revolution that happened in the audio arts 150 years later when we transitioned from painters who had to do a portrait of your family by getting the family dressed up in their sunday best clothes and standing there for a full week while the guy <laughs> you know paints them and the kids oh don't move kids oh look over here oh raise your chin up it took days to capture reality By pushing paint around on canvas. And then some idiot came along and says, hey, everybody, check this out. And it was this new technology, this wooden box. And all I got to do is put the family in front of the wooden box, squeeze the bulb, and just go to the dark room for a little bit and bam, oh, you've got a
1: photograph. And there you are. They don't even charge extra for hands.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Bye-bye, painters. (laughs) Bye-bye. We don't need you anymore. So what were those incredible craftsmen going to do with their talents? Eric Kendall writes about this and he says, J.M.W. Turner in 1842 says, no, 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 I'm not done with, I'm free because now rather than capture reality with my skills, I'm going to capture what the world feels like. Let the wooden box capture what it looks like. And he did. The same thing happened to us in music in the 1990s. That's when the digital audio workstation came along and, oh man, you don't know how hard it is to get a great kick drum sound with microphone position and with tuning the drum and microphone selection, and it's hard. I mean, you have to decide, is it gonna be a wooden beater or a a soft beater? There's so many decisions to make. You were a real maestro if you could consistently get a great kick drum sound. It was hard, it took hours. Now you just go to splice.com and with your mouse, it's like, ding, 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 ding. There's your kick drum. You want a bigger one? You want a smaller one? There's (laughs) a thousand of them. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. so the new silicon box rocked our world and changed record-making methods and changed, as you were saying, about the difference between the bone flute and the harp. The technology changed. And so the form, the stimulus changed as well to suit the technology.
1: I got like a bit of a front row seat to this. I'm a little bit, came up, I don't know, maybe 15 years after you, I would guess. And so I learned on an API 1608 in a room with microphones and a 1608... There was pro tools but the pro tools was basically just a tape machine you know and everything that we did every sound that we got was from mic position choosing you know all all that stuff you described and it took hours take after take this mic needs to be an inch over here inch over here and then i moved to la and started working at Hans zimmer studio Mm. which was all you know it's just all digital every sound you can imagine and as many sounds that you would never imagine are just at your fingertips they're recorded perfectly they sound amazing the limit is just your own imagination. Yes. You can literally make any sound yeah. on earth.
0: So, in um, my day, we had to work from the materials to the vision. Your vision would be made of whatever materials you could get your hands on, and that was determined by the record budget. So, if you were, I don't know, a Celine Dion or Madonna or somebody like that, you'd have a, the biggest budget that you can imagine. And if you were most of us, you'd have a budget that was fairly constrained, and it constrained The studios and how much time you could spend in them, and it constrained the session musicians you might be able to get because you got to pay these people, the musical instruments you could rent. So here are the people, materials that we have, there's the studio time we have, we take our materials and let's see what sort of vision we can make from these materials. Today, with the digital technology, now we can work from the vision to the materials. Here's my vision. And I can find the materials right there in the box. This tells us then that the rulers of music tomorrow are going to be the visionaries. I'm seeing what Tyler, the creator is doing. And I'm thinking, yeah, he's got the right idea. I think that Tyler, the creators and Kendrick Lamar and similar artists are going to be establishing for others. Here's where we're going, folks.
1: I agree. There's also just as an orchestral composer, the samples are not the same. True. And true. They, they work differently. You play them differently. And there is this really weird and interesting thing that happens now, which is if you listen to, let's say, an orchestra, I'm giving away chapters in my book, mm. but fuck it. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you listen to an orchestral trailer, what you'll hear is a lot of staccato string melodies uh-huh. building up to like big percussive hits. And that's because those things sound great as samples. And ah, that's why we use them. You know, now like, I like really Good. like legato, beautiful, luscious uh-huh. melodies. You can program them pretty good, but an orchestra sounds way better, but these staccato things sound really good. Good point. Um, So I've found myself in recording sessions in order to please a client, trying to get real musicians to sound like samples.
0: Aww. Well,
1: because this is what the client wants. This is what the client wants, it's
0: what they expect. Expectations, you asked earlier about what, you know, determines a person uh, falling in love with a record. And I mentioned the seven dimensions, but I guess we just take it as obvious that context and expectations Function matters. Uh, It needs to serve a certain function for someone, and people are going to, imaginations are only so good. Mm -hmm. So they're going to imagine, yeah, this is what I've heard before. Do something that's similar to what I've heard before. That's a really interesting Mm -hmm. point, though, about what sort of musical gestures sound good as samples and what don't. Now, of course, there are styles of music that will always use the old methods, and Mm -hmm. that would be orchestral and certainly folk music. Folk music—you're gonna get people playing acoustic instruments around a microphone or two. Right. Uh, you're not gonna bring We've up been a doing digital it for banjo. F-
1: probably a hundred thousand years. I don't think we're gonna stop. Yeah. Yeah. Truly. Even if that is never really popular music, the way it was in the '60s and '70s, it will always, I think, exist. Just people playing music. Classic styles. A, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Horns. I don't know. I haven't been in the studio in a long time. Not to work anyway, but I don't know that sampled horns can give you what real horns
1: give you. I I mean, no sample can give you what the real instrument gives you. But when recording started, one of the things that Segovia and John Philip Sousa wrote a great article about this, about how you can't capture the nuance of a performance in a recording. And at the time that he was writing, that was 100% true. Mm. Now it's no longer true. But Mm. at that time, it was true. And it turns out that what the public heard from a Sousa recording was the melody. And that was actually the only thing they really cared about, Mm. you know? And so we as performers spend all this time trying Mm. to hone these little tiny details that we think everybody cares about. And it turns out really what they want was da, 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 da. Like that's the thing (laughs) that lights up in their brain. And it's just amazing to listen to those recordings. Like, I mean, if you listen to a New Orleans brass band recorded in the 1920s, and then you hear them today, you realize it's just a completely different thing. You can't even hear the drums in the recording, which is yeah. like the whole band. I think it's yeah. like
0: looking at a photograph of the Mona Lisa and actually going to the museum and actually seeing the Mona Lisa. Yeah, You do lose something in the translation to another medium.
1: But you, you get something about, to use your analogy, there's something about seeing the Mona Lisa even in a photograph. Like You understand that there's beauty there. Yeah. And that might satisfy a really weak urge to see beauty, but the Mona Lisa in person, let me use the statue of David because I haven't seen the Mona Lisa. Mm. The statue of David in theory is amazing. The statue of David in person is life changing. (laughs) It's a 11 foot tall Mm. marble statue that looks like it's about to walk away. Gosh, is that amazing? Yeah.
0: My friend Tim is a sculptor. I've never seen the uh, statue of David. I've seen the Mona Lisa, but Tim helped me appreciate sculpture by saying, how do you push one material around so that it looks like hair, and flesh, (laughs) and cloth. It's all one material. Same thing with pushing oil around on canvas. Mm -hmm. That's one medium, and it's skin over here, and then I've changed how the light bounces off of it, and it's wood over here, and it's fruit over there, and it's a tabletop here.
1: Great skill. Well, is recorded music really closer to that kind of art than music was before it was able to be recorded? Because all of the great arts, talking about sculpture and painting, these are where you take raw materials in our mm. case sound waves and you make them into something permanent right and we were not as musicians able to do that except on the you know intense level of abstraction of a score which you know yeah. two orchestras play completely differently but when you make a record you know when you susan rogers sign your name to it and hand it into the record company that's what that record's going to be forever it's mm. you know it's frozen it's an oil painting that you mm. that you made is that like a similar art do you think that record making is a different art form than Music composition?
0: It it certainly is. I think your regard for music is broader than mine, quite naturally, because you're a composer and I assume a player as well. So, for you, when you want to engage with music, you can write it and you can play an instrument and perform it, and your body and your brain are making gestures that express music. That's what you're doing. For us non musicians, music only exists as recorded music for all intents and purposes. I don't write, I don't play. If I want music, the experience of music, the only avenue I have to get it is to select a record and play it. So I think the answer is kind of a yes and no. All the music is, is is records to non-musicians. To musicians, music is much more.
1: Yeah, the music, there's a physicality to music to me that I guess doesn't exist to other people who don't play music.
0: Yeah, no, of course I could, you know, you give me a conga, and I, I'm capable of hitting a conga, is not going to be musical. I bet, I, you can, I bet
1: you can bang a drum with some pretty oh, sick feel. I don't
0: know. I don't know. And I, I
1: know that you can hand clap because that's in your book.
0: I can, I can hand clap, yep. yeah,
1: yeah. I know you can do soul claps too. <laughs> yeah. But, but
0: the, yeah, to cross that divide and actually really be called music, yeah, I'm going to stay on this side of the river.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, Miles Davis once said that some of the best musicians he's ever met are non-musicians. I learned Very that from your
0: true. book too. Yeah, and, and I, know, I, I think I know what he meant.
1: Yeah, what, what do you think he meant?
0: Well, I know from speaking with Marcus Miller and a couple other musicians who played with him that he would tell his musicians, all highly trained expert virtuosos, he'd tell them to play like non-musicians sometimes. And what he meant was not to play badly. He meant take that naive impulse to express yourself that every three-year-old has and presumably 97-year-olds have, take that impulse and make music from that impulse, not from your head and your theory and your training. So when he said some of the best musicians I know are non-musicians, he means the really good players know what it's like to listen like and to feel like a non-musician. The reverse of that is um, some of the best musicians are us Mm non-musicians because we've got music in us. We are musical in our way of speaking and acting and talking and seeing, serving the world, feeling the world. We just don't have any training. So some of the best musicians I know just might happen to be non-musicians. I always embraced that.
1: I think that's beautiful. And I think about this in one of the really profound things from your book was, you know, you start with the shags. I think that's Mm -hmm. the first. Yeah, that's the first track on the playlist. And if you haven't heard the shags, they're awful in some ways, and they're also amazing. Yes, and it's unclear which one of them is more dominant. I guess, as a record producer, one of the things that I think of when I'm evaluating music is you know, I'm not going to like every piece of music, but like mm-hmm. what I think of, especially if I'm evaluating the music of a student or someone who's coming to me for advice, is is this what they intended? Like, did they get what they wanted? Yeah, and that's no small feat, yes. it's a huge feat, actually. And the Shags. For as weird as that music is, it's exactly what they intended.
0: Yeah. For (laughs) those who don't know, the Shags were uh, three sisters, Betty, Helen, and Dorothy Wigan. They lived in in rural New Hampshire in the 1960s, (laughs) and their dad who had apparently no musical ear at all, believed that they were intended for fame and stardom as a pop band, like the Beach Boys and the Beatles and that kind of thing. So he actually pulled his daughters out of school, and he forced them to stay in the room all day, not date boys, not go to parties, and learn to play drums, bass, and guitar, and write some songs and sing them. So Dad managed to cobble a little bit of money together, went down to a studio in Boston to record the album that is now called Philosophy of the World. And when the engineers there heard those three young girls on the mic, they just shut the control room door. And as Bob Hearn said, one of the engineers there, he said, we rolled on the floor laughing. It was so awful. But these three sisters would stop in the middle of a take and look at one another and say, no, you're doing it wrong. (laughs) The whole thing is wrong. But why people in the music industry have high regard for them And why we remind ourselves to listen to the shags is they are the musical equivalent of a child's finger painting. Mm -hmm. A child's finger painting is not going to hang in an art museum Mm -hmm. because there's no technique there. What you're seeing in the child's finger painting is a pure, undiluted intentionality. A little one who does a little child's drawing is saying, this is my world. Mm -hmm. These are my people. This is my house. This is my dog this is me. With no technique, those hands are pushing those water paints or crayons or whatever around on this piece of paper to say, my world is like this. When technique is out of the picture, all you have is intentionality. So when musicians get all kinds of formal musical training, like the kids I see at Berkeley have, they often can be in the recording studio or at their gig on stage and they're playing. They're hitting the notes, the right notes at the right time, the right velocity. Technically, it's right. But if they're not investing their soul in it and the intentionality to communicate with you, it just sounds vapid. It sounds empty. It sounds soulless. Why would anyone want to listen to that? What music is and how it communicates is more than simply hitting the right notes at the right time. It's about that intentionality and that desire to, I want to connect to you. I want to show you something i want to tell you something
1: that's amazing and the shags what you lay out is the spectrum from naive music which would be the shags Mm. to cerebral music which is let's say stockhausen Mm -hmm. or something just that is just entirely math based and in your head and as a former conservatory student and a frequent conservatory visitor i totally agree with you i mean i've seen concerts where i would walk out and say there was not technically anything wrong with that but i was bored out of my mind you know and i've also seen concerts in the world where like i don't really know what happened but that was a great show
0: yes we know it when we feel it and even untrained listeners are sensitive to intentionality that
1: underlies performance gestures so I kind of had a moment reading your book because um, I had many moments because it's a brilliant book. And Thank if, you. you're, if you're a non musician, it's very easy to follow because it's written by a non musician who happens to be a fantastic musician. But the thing that occurred to me is on the spectrum between naive and cerebral, when you're engaged in the study of music at the conservatory level, you're trying to traverse this ocean. Like, you know, everyone who plays music professionally or wants to started by liking music, presumably right? And that you just banged on a piano and you thought this was cool. Maybe if I do this more, it'll get cooler. And when you go to a conservatory, you go way far into the world of the cerebral. And it reminded me of the uncanny valley, right? Where in visual media, if something is like a Disney princess, your mind will accept it as fantasy. If it gets too close to reality, it starts to look really, really creepy. And if it looks exactly perfect like reality, then it's fine. But I think that this has been the danger for me, too, is that you musically get into this place where your music is just too technical and you have to get back to the naivete without making it get worse. I don't know. Yeah.
0: When I give live talks, if I don't have a moderator on stage, I'll give a presentation. And in the slide where I'm contrasting. Naive music, music that comes from the gut, from the heart, maybe from the belly button, from the groin. I'm contrasting naive music with sentimental. That's what the scholar Friedrich Schiller called it. In our book, we called it cerebro. But we're talking about music from below the neck or music from above the neck. And the comparison I make is between Howlin' Wolf and Ella Fitzgerald. Now, I love Howlin' Wolf, so play some Howlin' Wolf. And you can hear, it sounds to me as though his performance is coming from his heart, right out through his body and bypassing any thinking whatsoever. He is purely feeling it in that moment. Now you listen to Ella Fitzgerald and you're hearing an expert with technique. She's a master. She's delivering perfect technique from the neck up. But Ella's got soul. And you know that it didn't get to that cerebral place. I'm speaking so metaphorically now, but it didn't get to that cerebral place unless she had the soul and the heart and the emotion and the feeling and the depth and the weight of life behind her to add to her technique. Conservatory students have been training so hard. Their worlds consist of training, and that's boring. Music is an expression of life, and life is beautiful, and it's ugly, it's fragile, and it's strong. It smells sweet and it stinks. It needs to have dirt under its nails. It needs to have mistakes. It needs to have failings if it's going to express the life of the listeners. Otherwise, it's just technique, which is good. Great. You worked really hard to get to that technique, but it's important to ingest some life in it.
1: Yeah, I think that's probably the best advice you can give any musician.
0: We have to talk with students about what it is they're actually doing because you're spending a fortune to go to Berkeley College of Music sure. and get that degree. It's costing you a lot of money. You got to be careful about how you say this. But the truth is they're making a product that consumers already have too much of. They're making a product that's not necessary for life. They're not installing HVAC systems. They're not administering vaccines. People will be fine if they don't get your music. How do you sell an unnecessary product in a glutted market. The only way you can hope to do that is that reaction that I talked about earlier, when someone listens to your work and says, that's me. Mm -hmm. You don't want them to be thinking, that's you. You are great. They don't buy records for that. And I need to have that. That belongs with me. I need to own this record.
1: I'm going to erase every piece of music I've ever done and <laughs> no, <don't laughs> redo do it. them with don't, that no, in mind. Don't do it. Now don't on. do it. Yes. Uh, you
0: know, when I worked with Prince, he yeah. said that once. We were young. We were in our 20s. We were on the Purple Rain tour and uh, we came out of a recording studio and we went up to the van and there was a, a note that was slipped under the windshield wiper and it looked like the handwriting looked like it was written by a, a young person. And it said, please leave me your autograph six times. And he looked at it and he kind of Laughed and he says, please leave me alone six times. (laughs) And uh, he he did the autograph. He liked young people. But he looked at me and he said, you know, it's not me they're interested in. They're interested in themselves. I know what he meant. He meant (sighs) when he's on stage and they see Prince, when they listen to Prince, they don't know about this man. And they don't really, on some deep level, want to know. What they see is an aspect of themselves that is inside and is going to stay inside, is going to stay buried. They're not going to go out into the world dressing like that, looking like that, talking like that, singing and playing like that, but it lives inside them. So they want to see him as an emblem of some aspect of themselves. I don't know how he figured that out at such a young age,
1: but he did. That's pretty brilliant. So your job as a record producer, and correct me if I'm wrong, is to understand why people are going to like music and then to make a band congeal around that vision. Mm -hmm. And then your career as a neuroscientist or acoustician is to understand that, I guess, on a physical level. Mm. So it's like something that you just understood. I mean, not everybody... Well, let me rephrase that. Almost nobody can be a good record producer. Mm -hmm. There's something inside of you that you understand about music that you're able to bring out of musicians, and it's a cocktail of really interesting and specific skills. What have you learned about yourself in this journey? Because now you understand on a physical, cerebral, psychological level, how some of these mechanisms that you understood intuitively work.
0: Well, record producers, recording engineers, mixers, performers, composers, people who make music, record makers, each have a sonic signature. Meaning once you've mastered your craft, you don't have it when you're young, but once you've mastered your craft, you can write and play, record, mix, things to sound the way you want them to sound. You're using your skill to excite your own listener profile. So I learned about my listener profile in learning to become a better producer. But I've always, I'm certain, I've always been aware of what I liked. Now, it turns out that when we're young and we're having positive, really positive musical experiences that really make us happy, It turns out that when the dopaminergic system is activated and you got those feel-good neurotransmitters coursing through your veins as you're experiencing music, as you're listening or playing or singing or writing or whatever, you're actually shaping your auditory cortex to get better at recognizing the music of you. So I was able to take, starting from Childhood, which a lot of people have this happen to them as well, just really loving music, just loving it like crazy. A lot of kids do. And wanting to serve it, wanting to be a part of it, wanting to help records come into the world. That love and that capacity for listening and knowing what it was I liked was something I was able to parlay into a career as an engineer and a producer and a mixer. I know what I like. So I think I can maybe be a stand in for other listeners in the studio and help you guys do something that they will like. In the studio, for example, you might assess the lyrics. I was working with an artist, not as the producer, as the engineer years ago, and I'll leave him nameless. But he had a song that his producer, this was all men in the studio. I was the only woman. His producer really liked this song because it was a real put down song. This artist was telling the girl who had broken his heart what he thought of her. And he was mean. He was mean spirited. I was able to say to him, are you sure that's what you want to say on record? Are you sure? Because I can tell you the women listening to this record aren't going to think it's quite that clever. Mm. They're going to think you're just mean. And this was a debut artist, so they don't have an impression of him. He's writing it from scratch. Mm. That's the kind of thing that a producer will kind of help do, hold up a mirror and say, when this work of yours goes out there into the world, Here's one way in which it could be received. Is that what you want? Did you intend for that to happen?
1: Susan Rogers, I usually end the podcast by asking people to recommend two books to our audience, but I would like to ask you to recommend two records, if you don't mind.
0: Oh, golly gee. Um, Maybe you want to listen to some Eddie Palmieri, if you don't already know his work because damn that was just amazing and the most recent record that i have played multiple times that i just loved is father john misty i love father john misty i love his lyrics i love his melodies i love his arrangements and so those two artists are night and day they're very different but i love them both so there you go
1: (laughs) all right well susan rogers thank you so much dr susan rogers Thank thank you so much for joining us Thank you for listening to Book Society. Our show is produced by me, Lucas Cantor Santiago. This episode was edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you're thinking, I would like to do something simple and easy to help out this show because I really like it. The thing you can do is to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It's Super simple. Takes a second. Doesn't cost anything. And it really, really helps the show out. There was part of me when I was reading your book on the plane that thought, you know what? Fuck the podcast. I'm just going to listen to records with Susan. We'll just (laughs) talk about them.